out of those. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Let's get out of this stuff. Hey, Tiger. Hey, Sean. Thank you for helping us. Yep. Automatic. Yeah, I, okay, download, I downloaded the Zoom. It only says I got 40 minutes. Do you pay the yearly fee? Yeah, the yearly fee. So it's on my side. It's my meeting. So we can go for as long as, as need be. Okay. Um, my girlfriend's Momo's outside sanding. Do you hear her sanding? No, I don't. Let me make sure my AC is off. Hold on. AC? Yeah. Um, we have air conditioning in the south because it gets so hot. You look good, man. Um, I've been working on my house all morning. Um, like I said, I'm remodeling. Um, so can you hear Momo's sanding right now? Um, hold on a second. Let me let me listen. Nope. Can't hear anything. So I re-roofed my house and I got all, this is my downstairs office. And of course, I got all my boards and Tiger's boards. And, you know, we're starting to really see some play here. And I'm really blessed to know that you as well as I you a late one but i own my house and yeah it's a it's an amazing thing in these times i think my beneficiary is going to be uh my son <laughs> okay so all right um, we're good to go i mean you know this is fun um and i'd like to do more um i reviewed your documents and your film stuff we want to work with you we want your help to help us and we want us to be able to help you. And let's East Coast, West Coast, Hawaii. And, and the mission is education. It's it's letting the the youth know what had has come before them and what better way than an individual like yourself, a legend that has seen it all. And I, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for taking the time. And um, do you have a lot of followers? I do. Um, on on this channel, I'm I'm just starting and building it. So not on this channel, but on my Instagram, I do have a lot of followers. That's that's kind of where I I do Let's my. Let's work together. Uh, Sorry it took so freaking long for me, but it's long overdue. Um, you look like you're not getting. Did you get some surf today? Yeah, actually, I um I I took a break from surfing and uh, took pictures and then helped Dax get into some waves because, like I, I said last night, I just kind of had a wipeout. And I really hit my head really hard. So I, I took the surfboard out this morning, but I kind of stepped back and was like, you know what? I'm not really all there. And um, so I just floated around, took some pictures and that, got to experience it that way. Well, you know, um, and my advice to you is um, if you feel any um, repercussions of this neck, go go talk to your family physician and maybe he'll, he'll um, don't give him medication, but maybe he might try to get an MRI for you because, you know, shit happens when you hit your head. I mean, Lord, Lord knows the wipeouts that I took at Piahi in my whole, my whole life. But anyways, thanks for having me. Let's get it on. Welcome to Speaking from Water, the only show that delivers legends of water to you. Today, we have one of my most sacred friends in the world, uh, a man who has seen it all literally from the beginning and has done things that humans before him had have never done. He is surf pioneer Derek Donner, and I'm just so honored um, to have him here uh, with us on this episode of Speaking from Water. And Derek, uh, you are, are 
the best. We we first met about 23 years ago. I was a little 20 year old who just showed up on the North Shore, and you were a larger than life legend. And you treated me like like gold with the most aloha. And I am forever grateful uh, to you. And over the course of these years, we've uh, we've developed a friendship, and it's just it's it's so amazing to um, to have you here with us today to to give us a little a little bit of knowledge about the water that that you've seen and uh, the time you spent in it. You know, Sean, that being said, you know, you think about the Hawaiian culture and you think about um, Duke Kahanamoku and you think about um, his aloha to share surfing around the world and to break some really big speed records. But, you know, um, there's always going to be another way, but it's not what you've done, it's who you are. And I really learned from the Beach Boys in town and from being in North Carolina and being part of surfing for God, 61 years now, um, which has changed tremendously. But my whole key to the whole surfing industry is treat others the way you want to be treated. And it's not what you've done. It's who you are. And, um, and, and surf with aloha. And if you're not surfing with aloha, um, you shouldn't even be out there. Would you say Aloha is surfing? We're we're like Indians. Surfers are a cult. And it's like Slater would say, it's like mafia till the day you die, or like Greg Go would say. I got tears to my eyes. All the way to the grave. Um it's it's not aloha, it's a lifestyle. I mean, we're an indigenous cult that's going to save the world. If you think about it, save the world, save the ocean. Look what Sea Shepherd is doing to our oceans. It's absolutely saving the Antarctica. It's saving fish. It's going around the world on a nonprofit organization, stopping illegal fishing so that the ocean can be reborn. Surfers are a lot like that. Um, we just need to get our um, SHIT together and, 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 and be together and, and love each other because we're very smart. We're very connected to the sea and um, surfing saves lives, by the way. And I think with that being said, um, it's just begun to save our planet. Um, it's making us more aware of plastic issues. It's making us more aware of violence. It's making us, um, it's like Brightsville Beach, you know, everybody goes out there and has fun till the winter comes and it's too cold. But East Coast surfers are such cool people because they stick together. I mean, there's some tough guys up in Long Island in New York, you know, that have attitudes, but man, we all got to get along together. <laughs> You know, and that's, you know, that has to be a, a lesson learned. So, Derek, you you didn't grow up in Hawaii. I, I would like to know uh, where where was the first place that you entered the ocean and and, and felt the the connection that it, it delivered to you the rest of your life? Where where was that? Who was it that that uh, introduced you to the ocean? You know, my. My father was in the Air Force. What's going on here? Like a lot of us. Um, my mom was really um, a French, European, Spanish, Garcia Rodi. And my dad was in the military and he flew all over the world. I was a military child whom became, um, my parents separated. So I was all over the place. But fortunately for me, my mom landed um, a beautiful 
piece of home in Malibu, California. And this is in the early 60s. I mean, you're talking Mickey Dora. You're talking the cat, Doodoo Weber, Phil Edwards. I mean, you're talking Gidget times. And um, my mom took me down to a place called Big Rock, just south of Malibu. Long darn tanker I had, big fanning. Remember, there was a rock right next to the water, and she took me out in a wetsuit, and I caught this wave, and I have pictures of that first wave, and that's where it really set in at about five years old. And then my parents separated, so it was weekends with my dad and and um, weekdays with my mom to go to school and be somebody that I didn't want to be, but my mom, I love her. Um, my dad was a fisherman, diver, uh, surfer, lifeguard, slash outdoorsman. He taught me and gave me all the tools of being outdoor. And he basic key was enjoy your youth. You only have it once. Don't worry about the rest. Well, I'm in the position that I'm in today because I didn't worry about the beginning to think about where I was going to become. But boy, did I have fun enjoying my youth. Um, that being said, um, I upped my grade to a place called Malibu first point caught a few waves and then my mom had this property up north of there called zuma and north of there is called honor rouge it's a very indian spiritual coastline and on that spiritual place there's a point called point zero and i knew this man and we'd go out there every weekend and he was named harry gessner and boy was he a centric architect he designed the jetsons he designed world famous houses that were 50, 60 years ahead of his time, involved in the coastline, involved, it was like, they were like plants or lighthouses or sandcastles or shark fins. He took me surfing one day and of course we didn't have wetsuits. What's that? You know, pelicans and seagulls. And we caught this wave and I stood up and we rode it all the way to the beach, but little did I know he was yodeling the whole way out loud. And he became known as um, Snoopy on the Malibu coastline. Everyone knew him. He was a yodeler. And he drove his car with his scarf and bandana and Snoopy goggles. and <laughs> The real deal. Um, as that came, um, I, uh, I revolted. All I wanted to do was surf. I was part of that mafia from six years old. <laughs> Imagine that. And I fought my mom and I fought my stepfather and I spent a lot of time with my dad, but long story short, um, I ended up in uh, boarding schools. I ended up in Europe in a boarding school. Je parle français très bien. Um, I did everything I was supposed to do that my mom taught me well. And um, I think then I did some bad things and I ended up in North Carolina after coming back from France. I think I believe that was 1970. You weren't even a spark in the eye. And um, we were living in Raleigh, get this. And I became quite a good ice skater, <laughs> a fish out of water. And I go to the ice skating rig every day I could. And um, one day my stepfather who's a tremendous man. Don is such a good man. He's all about the future. And he's very smart with the future. Hey, we're going to go look at this place called, and you guys are going to get a kick out of this. It's down there near Rideshill Beach. It's an island called Figure Eight. Oh, cool. Can I bring my surfboard? He goes, sure. I'll never forget. We drive down North Carolina, by the way. It's so beautiful and so much tobacco and 
girls and we drive down in the coastline and we go over this drawbridge and we drive down this giant straightaway. It could be a runway. And right at the end of the straightaway, there's this house. And he pulls up in the driveway and says, we're going to be staying here, I think. And so I run outside and run out to the front yard. And it's in the middle of summer, Sean. And it's two to three feet, four foot sets. It's straight offshore. And I look to the right and I look to the left. There's not one person on the beach. And I'm like, this is going to be good. And um, I found my love again. And, you know, I was on figure eight island in the very beginning. Just the Camerons and the Hardys and, the, you know, very few people. And, um, it was a dream come true and I was reborn, but the bottom line was serving was part of my life again after France and after, you know, so many places to not put me close to the ocean and God, God works in mysterious ways. God works in mysterious ways. It's always going to put you in the right place at the right time. And, and like I told you, Sean, follow your heart. It's going to take you where you want to be. And you always told me Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii. I go, no, 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 no. You visit Hawaii. You visit your uncles. You visit the dogs. But you go to your heart. Because Carolina is the most beautiful surf town, beach town. Changes are everywhere. Work in the winter. Play in the summer. Can you tell me a little bit about what what surf culture was there when you first arrived? Was there any? Um, did you, do you kind of feel like you brought the knowledge that you had in in California? You you were really um, deprived in in France, and then when you got to North Carolina, you had the seed in you. It, it, was there other surfers around? Um, what was it like? Well, I will say that I was the first person to ever surf in the Mediterranean so far. Um, back in the six, oh, shoot, I can't remember any days of some of the white belts, but when I got to Figure Eight Island, there was no one there. Um, I had to go to Wrightsville Beach to surf with someone where I met, you know, um, the, the booths and um, Hairball, and I met some really good guy, Jimmy Mack and Greg Griffith, and um, Lord and behold, um, Jot Owens used to come out to the island, who's a big time local out of Wrightsville Beach. Um, and Egbert Owens. Um, and then I started meeting Phil Booth. So we started going back and forth, but I would ask guys like you, hey, come to figure eight, I'll leave a pass at the gate. And we would jump in this truck that we had and go to the north end or the south end or the middle, wherever we wanted. We picked our own sandbar. There was nobody there um, the whole time I was there. And there was nothing about crowds. It was either low tide on the outside or wait for the tide to go come up. And then it would be um, that North Carolina shore break, you know, where you could get those giant Larry Birdman barrels and come out and think that you're um, a Hawaiian God, you know. But I did learn one lesson. Um, can't surf in the winter. It's too cold. It's like I tried one time. I had a. I had a wetsuit, but um, I couldn't even walk on the beach after 15 minutes. It was in, in the 30s and 40s. And of course, I ended up a mile down the beach and I had to crawl back up the beach to get picked up. And I said, never again will I ever, ever go below 50 degrees. 
guys, you guys are hardcore. If you think that you can get me out of your car to go surf Wrightsville Beach in the middle of winter, uh-uh, I'll stay in your car and keep the heater on and, and, and scoop you up and take you home for the hot shower. And let me ask you this. When you get out of the water in North Carolina in the wintertime, um, can you turn the key in your car? <laughs> well, that's a good question. If you don't have gloves, probably not. But like wetsuit technology today is incredible. Um, you can be out there as long as you want with the stuff they're, they're making. Now, when you were, were doing it, I can't imagine what the material was like. And I'm sure it was probably good in the fall and in the spring and the winter was just like bonkers. But yeah, you know, full hood, gloves, like you're, you're totally, you're totally good. Um, but I, get, I know I, but um, I you're also to... surfing with a lot more people today. So it's a, it's a different thing. So let me ask you this one more question. So you get in your car, you don't even get out of your wetsuit. You just drive home and crawl into your shower hot. Uh, personally, yes, that's that's usually what I do. I, I don't take the wetsuit off. Um, I drive 10 minutes and then I, I go in the shower. Yeah. On the coldest of days, I would say. Bring back to the time period. What what was it that got you out of, of Wrightsville Beach? They're very, very strong family in North Carolina. And um, what once was a great friendship, um, part of the country clubs, Cape Fear Academy, um, it turned around and bit my stepdad for him restructuring Figure Eight Island. Um, I believe it might have been um, a money laundering thing. And they hired him to reconstruct tax-wise, reconstruct the company, which he did tremendously. But um, once he did that, I think that they felt that maybe he did too good of a job. And so the pressure started coming on him um, after he owned property on the North End and after he built his home. Um, you could see that he had done his job. That being said, um, I was revolting. I was going to Cape Veer Academy. All I wanted to do was serve. I didn't care about anything else. That being said, I was working at the marina. I was saving my little coins. I had an XR7 Cougar. I had everything, but I didn't have what I wanted. And so when I became around 14 years old, I'll never forget, I went over and Junior's tires, said bye-bye. Um, got a ride to an airport. I'm not too sure where, but I think I ended up Piedmont Airlines in Raleigh, and then I ended up in Hawaii. And I, I came to Hawaii like everybody else. And how old were uh, you? 14 years old. On your on your own. You, you... My dad lived on the Big Island, so I ventured okay. to the to um, toenail off of him. Um, but when I got there, I'd been so independent previously, um, which my mom and my stepdad really taught me well, that it didn't work out with my dad because he lived in a small little home. And um, I met some surfers down at Banyans and they had a big house and they had a big family. And um, I ended up um, living in the pool room, which they loved because I washed dishes, cleaned dishes. And I became a part of the Allen family. Um, I went to high school, junior high school. Let me see. The ninth, 10th, 11th grade. Um, 
surfed my brains off on the big island. Um, it became what they know over there as stuntman, because I guess I could surf pretty darn good in those shallow waters. Met a really good group of Hawaiian friends that taught me one thing. Go in. Respect your elders. Pick up trash on the beach. No drop in. And they ran the lineups. No questions. So I learned from the best about respect. Long story short, along that time around the 12th grade, me and David Kahanamoku, the son's great-grandson, Bunny Kahanamoku's son, part of the Kahanamoku legacy, my best friend. God bless you, David. Um, my dad cut out this little piece of paper and the Honolulu advertisement said, City and County's um, lifeguard tryouts. So we flew over to Oahu, me and David, took the bus to the natatorium, um, did the test, run, swim, run, um, first aid, CPR, all in one day, passed, all in one day. We became Hawaiian lifeguards, water safety. In my class were Buffalo Kealana, Ryan Kealana, Teddy Bear Davis, Rella's son, Melvin Pu'u, myself, and Kahanamoku, and Ivan Harada. And to this day, you mentioned any one of those names, and we were um, the Wolf Pack. When you showed up to this tryout, how much uh, swimming history did you have to that point? Were you, were you intimidated? Uh, you, were you confident? Where, where was your emotional state? I was completely a water brat. I could swim like Duke Kahanamoku. Um, I could, you know, I, I dove with my dad. He was a charter fisherman. So I worked at deckhand. I was, I was felt really good with the ocean and to be a good swimmer, you can be a good surfer. Um, when I showed up for class, um, it was a different thing because it was all Hawaiians and locals. And you got to realize Buffalo and Teddy Bear, they're from Waianae. And here I am, this little blonde-haired, green-eyed, long-haired little kid. But Aloha Kaieo was an old Hawaiian beach boy, and he was the one giving the swim test. And if you're familiar with the natatorium, it's a war memorial that was made into a swimming pool with bleachers. And then under the bleachers were rooms. So it was like, it's still there. They're trying to preserve it. But we all lined up. And then we drove, dove in the pool, 50 meters down and 50 meters back. But when we hit the water, the water was Miko, which is kind of dirty because it doesn't breathe too much in the natatorium. So I popped my head out of the water. I swam all the way down with my head out of the water, swam all the way back with my head out of the water. Aloha Kaio looked down at me, pointed at me and told me to get out of the pool. I don't know why. Everybody else had to swim 10 laps, 10 down, 10 back. When they all got out of the water, Aloha Kael told everybody there, when you're a lifeguard, you never swim with your head down. Always swim with your head up so you can watch your guy that you're going after to make sure that he doesn't go down or don't go up or don't go left or go to the right. Once in a while, if you need to go fast, put your head down, but pop it back up. And that's why he pulled me out of the pool. Lesson learned, 
if you are training for a lifeguard at Wrightsville Beach, just remember those, um, remember that because if you lose vision of that person, then, then it's like trying to find a grain of sand in the whole ocean and it's really hard. So you want to 100% keep an eye on that horizon, baby. Incredible. So after, after you got on the squad, where did they send you? I had my little, I, I, we went back to the big Island. We packed up my BW van. We put it on young brothers and we came back and David Kahanamuka and I were assigned to the North shore. David was assigned to rock piles, which is Kawaiana, which is um, Derek's peak, by the way, in the seventies and eighties and early nineties. Now I think John, John, bangs it all out and i tell him stories about that and he just really sucks it up but i ended up at waimea bay and there were two people at waimea bay and i think you might know one of them and i made really big fat jellyfish and honey sandwiches with banana in it and back then waimea bay was a one-man tower and the one man in the tower was the late great eddie eichau and he didn't say much to me for a while, but after a while he saw that I knew what I was doing and he, he only taught people who wanted to be teached. My other partner was Mark Dombrowski who was just, we ran, we swam, we body surfed, we cleaned the beach. I mean, there was nobody there. Um, but Eddie was really a great man. Um, it was the tail end of his career, though. I knew that something else was going on in his life because he, he would come late and he would leave early. And um, he loved my peanut butter sandwiches. And he started talking to me a lot about my man. And don't, don't chase the dragon. Um, let it come to you. And um, he had this VW bus, VW bug, with one old school surf rack on it. Old school. And he'd have five boards on that VW tied on the front, but then they all fanned off the back like a like a, a wing. And he just left them on the car. So when he took one board off, he'd have to take all of them if they didn't fall. But that that was such a great time when everybody on the North Shore was just surfers and farmers and cattle. And one of the bitchiest things about it, there was only three cars. There was VW, a Fiat, or a Toyota, yeehaw! And the universal language from the townies to the country. The guys who drive by and go, it's up. And you better have the right board when you drive to the North Shore from town, <laughs> otherwise you better turn around and go home. But, ah, we go home. So that was some of the things that, you know, I'll never forget, and of course, you could stick your thumb out in the third car, the second car, the first car would stop and pick you up. There was never traffic. Um, we had no cable TV. We had no Wi-Fi. We had to listen to scene assessments, the intervals from the waves at night, the direction of the wind through your windows that you could hear, the smell, onshore wind, shade, I'm gonna work today. Um, Seeing a segment was all about looking out your window, as it is for you, Sean. You could go to your office. Going from your house, you know already. 
if the surf is going to be blown out, if the surf is going to be stormy, if it's going to be good, you know, if you take your time and load that Peter McCabe over there in the corner or whatever you got going on now. All I can say is walk out there and catch them all. Prepare your cooler. Don't go to the beach. Go to the store. Go to 7-Eleven. Stay on the beach. The college is right in front of you. It's free. The best teacher in the world is the ocean. And that's who we are. Ocean gods. Surfers. So this first day you meet Eddie, he had his reputation. Uh, what, what, what was the, um, the, the first like big situation you were in with him and how, how did, how did that go? Well, Eddie was assigned to Waimea Bay and when the surf was big, he would just be in the lineup at Waimea Bay. Um, he wouldn't come in for any peanut butter jelly sandwich or water or anything. He had no PFD, he had no rescue, he had no nothing, but he just surf all day. And how, we worked with him as he told us, you know, you guys, when, when I go on the water, just put this the, the rescue board sideways. And I'll watch the rescue board. And as soon as I see that the rescue board is not there and I can't see it, then he's going to come over in the channel. And that's where we're jumping in at the paddle out spot. One guy's swimming out and then we'd all meet up and he'd teach us from there. So it was a kind of a visual thing. I try to teach them that now, but they're too much into um, um, Wi-Fi. You don't even see him get out of the tower nowadays, but there are some good, great guards. Um, Eddie didn't say much. He just looked out the tower and just kind of give you a little nod. And it was a wonderful nod. Um, we, we built our reputation from there, but like I said, he, there was something else in Eddie that was really elusive and quiet. And that's how he taught me to be silent but deadly. Don't say much, just react and do. And I think I've carried that trait my whole life. You know, I, I serve vicariously through my son and through your daughter and through you. I could just sit on the beach and be just like anybody else and content for the life and the waves that I've already ridden. But I might have had a little downer last year due to some health issues, but this winter... It's all about self-health, surf, sun, no stress, eat well, repeat. Absolutely. And wh when was it that you first started your big wave surfing? A and how long did it take for you to, to, to get there? Because you were on the big island and you were coming from he here, which was you know, very small. You know, you got the love. But how was it that you adjusted to such a large situation at a period of time when equipment was, uh, you know, I don't want to say primitive, but it was not where it is today. And there were no life vests. There were no jet skis. Um, what, how, how did you say to yourself and what was it inside you that said, I'm going to go out there and, I, and I'm going to do this and, and why? A lot of questions in one sentence, but I can say, I apologize. It's all good, bro. Like I can say, I was on the big island. And I was in Hawaii and I was focused at a spot called Banyans. And in the summertime, it got really good south swells, really, really good. But then we didn't care about that very much. We wanted the north swells. We wanted the winter swells. Unfortunately for the Big Island, um, 
Kauai, Nihau, Oahu, Maui, Kaho'olawi, Lanai, they're all in the way. So we could be sitting at Banyans and listening to the Ray KKUA and the North Shore, Sunset Beach, 12 to 15 feet, Waimea Bay, 12 to 15 feet, and it's pumping straight offshore. We're at Banyans and it's six inches. Surf prison. And that started happening a lot for me. When the surf did get good on the big island, oh my God, it was like a dream come true. Perfect waves in both directions, straight offshore winds, 75 degree water for days. But when it went flat, it went flat for weeks, if not months. So that was telling me that my heart wanted more of that bigger wave that outside Molokai that we call it. And so, so did David Kahanamoku. Answering another one of the questions, we left the big island to follow the surf on the North Shore of Hawaii, as thousands and thousands of other people do, because it is the melting spot, the proving spot of the world. And I'm not saying that there's not a lot of great waves all over the world, this is the spot. This is where all the kings were born. As I got to the North Shore and was lifeguarding the 70s and the 80s, it was always big. So we had to not ride 5'11s and 6'2s. We were on, fortunately, we were on Brewers. And Brewer lived right down the street from me. And he started shaping my boards when I was 18, 19 years old. All single fins, one board fits all. And that allowed us to start paddling out to where the waves were bigger, where they were breaking. And that gave me the itch to go farther outside. But I had a secret weapon. Not only did I have Dick Brewer, I had a Kahana Moku. I had David. And it was in his blood. And he loved to surf with me. And he loved big waves. And so we became two peas in the pod. We started surfing. We tried pipeline, but pipeline was not our spot. We wanted more room. So we ended up at rock piles. And we ended up at sunset. And once we got to sunset, it was a giant arena. It was three football fields in one. The better you got, the more waves you got. And that's how we just started pursuing bigger waves and bigger waves. And like I said, it was always big then, Sean. So it was relatively consistent. We didn't have any surf reports. We just listened to our ear. We didn't have 18 boards. We only had one board or two, one for Waimea and Makaha and one for Sunset. And if we broke the Sunset board, which didn't happen too much back then, then we just used somebody else's board. But we didn't have quivers. We didn't have Wi-Fi. Um, as that progressed, I really got good at riding big waves. I really found a spot at Sunset Beach. Mind you, my teachers, not like now, 
or Ken Bradshaw, James Jones, Barry Kaniapuni, Hackman, Reno, um, Al Chapman, Dick Brewer, Lopez. I had to sit in the lineup with these guys, and you got to believe me, they knew what the heck they were doing. They knew what wave they wanted, and so I had to fit my knowledge with what waves they missed. But along that journey, we all became friends. We all shared knowledge because a group of people go farther than individuals, no egos. Um, and the learning curve just was tremendous. I mean, you're talking, you see Reno and Jeff Hackman drop into a wave. You better stop and study because their precision, their style from the soul, their power. I mean, my God. And then along came James Jones and Peter Cole and Eddie Aikau, and maybe two miles out to sea on the outer reefs. And we're like, holy shit. That being said, we started riding a lot of big waves. Makaha, giant Makaha, gigantic Makaha. And Makaha is the most horrific wave in the world when it gets big because it's like a train. And that train wants to just come and roll right over you in it well. And you better make sure you get in before the, the point of no return because you'll end up at 7-Eleven two miles down the street. You had to be tremendous swimmers. You had the buddy-buddy system. And you had to work with those systems as you have. You pick my brain. I'm sharing with you. You know, after that period of the best boards in the world, the Reno's, the Cherries, the Brewers, the Allen Burns. I mean, every Australian surfer came to Hawaii to learn from us and hang with us. You got Bugs, you got PT, you got Carnsey, you got, you got them all. And then you've got my best friend, Alan Byrne, who shaped the most precise surfboards in the world. And we would all meet every winter and we'd all be bros. As time evolves, people move on to other things, family first, work second, surf third, but there's still a group out here. What I've noticed though, is we can get into that a little bit later. I'll tell you about that. But that being that, um, I caught a lot of big waves. Brewer was shaping me some fantastic boards. He loved my concept. While we're on Brewer, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I really want to know from your ear, from your mouth, like what is it about a Brewer surfboard that is so special and intelligent? Brewer was a genius. He invented the drag racer. He was an ace gunman. He could rebuild any motor. He could sing any country western song. He was a genius. And then he stumbled in the surfboards. And that became his mind transcended to his fingers. And he started coming up with these theories in speed, um, the water and spoon theory, the concave theory, the Excalibur theory, his templates, his rockers. He became the man. And there was nobody else on the North Shore that could touch his boards. 
and in the world, he became world renowned. He's the most fantastic shaper when he would put the template on the board and look at you and go, how big do you want it? And what size ways do you write? And he would draw it out and start shaping it. And I'll never forget when it would transform from a blank to a semi-shaped blank to a finished shape. It was just like, oh my God. Um, fortunately, I was his good friend and he shaped me some tremendous boards, Sean. And I still have a lot of them. Uh, I managed to get that Super Bowl Sunday wave, which is like one in a lifetime. Um, it's like our friend um, from North Carolina, I believe it is. He caught a big wave, Nazare. Mason Barnes. And his dad is a very successful businessman and a great friend of mine. Has a house Reggie, in Re Reggie Barnes. You only catch one, and Reggie knows this. And if Reggie Jr. knows this. You only get one wave like that in your life. As my son knows this. And um, rejoice it because you're going to try and try again, but it'll never happen like my Super Bowl Sunday. You'll catch a lot. Never that one moment. Um, I got bored with surfing big waves. I just got bored going straight. And, um, and one day I was in my tower, uh, Sean, and I saw this sunset beach and i saw this pink sail go out at backyards and backyards is backyards around sunset nobody goes to backyards because then you got to go to vn and get your ass kicked so everybody stayed over at sunset or down and um the pink sail went out at backyards and um if anybody knows what the pink sail is it's uh one 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 it's robbie nash the most unbelievable windsurfer slash waterman in the world. Well, Robbie went out and he just didn't go out the first reef. He went out the second reef and he was just smearing the waves and wide power when you could fly was what I was thinking. So I watched that and I ran out the backyards and there he was with his windsurfing equipment. And there I was looking at it with 20 other of our yardbirds and that was it. Our whole life changed from being surfers at sunset to big wave riders, we all went to backyards. We wanted every single piece of windsurfing we could get. And it was a dangerous sport. We started beating the crap out of ourselves. We invented every cuss word there ever was in the book. We hurt ourselves, but we just started going off. We were flying over the lip 15 feet. We are bashing off the top, breaking everything, bottom turns, going all the way through Sunset Beach, back to the three backyards. We were saved. Um, as time evolved, we got bored with that. 15, 20 years, it started breaking everything. Climate change happened. The wind stopped. Literally in one year. From going to work early to getting off early, the wind just completely stopped. The sport of windsurfing stopped. Thank God around that time we started snowboarding. I know you know how fun snowboarding is. And um, I think I told you this story, but we were, Lopez and me and Larry, we were banging all these giant peaks in Alaska with the helicopter. And oh my God, this is just too much. One day we came back to the North Shore and we just had this idea of, let's go to the outer reefs on a jet ski and huh, see what we can do there so we took the rubber ducky and 
And Lord, the sport of kings was born. Where you was match all three sports together to create one. And you have to be a good big wave rider. You got to go be a good windsurfer for the foot straps to catch the waves, to know the lineups, to know how to swim in without help. And you have to be a great snowboarder and combine those together. And voila, the sport of kings was born. Why it's gone backwards, I have no idea. When they can paddle out on these giant waves and these giant boards and go straight and fall off. I just, we did that already. That's why we went to Brewer and made a bitty, bitty little tow board like a snowboard. So before you got to Brewer, were you using windsurfer boards or were you strapping straps to surfboards? No, on our windsurfing days, we only used our windsurfing boards with the straps. Um, but when we started towing, um, I have the original, I have a 1010 Brewer. Buzzy had his Brewer and Laird had his Billy Hamilton surfboards. These are guns. So we started towing around on those things with no straps, but we were riding two miles on one wave because we knew the windsurfing lineups, where to tow in the Zodiac. We knew all that. Whereas if you were a paddling surfer and you tried to paddle out there, you might not ever get out there. You might not even know where the lineup is, but we knew where the lineups because we'd done it a thousand times with our sailboards, throwing our jive right here, bang, all the way through sunset. And then you might not even catch a wave and you might not ever see your surfboard again and swim three miles. So, you know, we match power with power. You know, you can't catch a freight train on a bicycle, you know, you, pistons were made for the ocean baby so um that became part um that was one day we were up in alaska and we just did this giant run and i looked down at the snowboard i looked at the mountain i looked at the snowboard and i told Laird that night i think we need to go see brewer and we go home so we went back home and we walked into brewer's shop and we looked at brewer and blair goes oh we want you to shape us a board that goes from point a to b as fast as possible and Brewer just gave us a big smile, real quick smile, and to come back in an hour. So we left the blank there. We went over to Cammy's Market. Of course, we got a sesame seed, an egg sandwich, and a coffee for Brewer. We went back in an hour, hour and a half, and walked in. There was a doobie in his mouth. The whole room was smoky. And there was Betsy sitting on the table, 95% done. True brew, ready to go. Full concave. Seven two, sixteen inches wide, inch and a half thick. That was it. Nobody could come close to Brewer. Tell us about that first session on that board. Well, it was only one board, so if you fall off, you lose your turn. That didn't go too good at the strap crew because there was eight or 10 of the most highly sophisticated watermen in the world. And I'm going to write down the names so we can keep this, but you had Robbie Nash, Peter Cabrera, Rush Randall, Mark Angulo, Brett Lickle, Laird Hamilton, Buzzy Kerbox, Victor Lopez, Jerry Lopez, Double D. Okay. Did I forget anyone? If I do. Okay. You had that group, which there's a thousand years of experience right there. Um, and didn't go too good uh, because Laird never fell off. So we never got our turn. So we had to come up with our own boards, which is basically what Brewer 
take good care of us. But um, it was a remarkable thing because when we put footstraps from the windsurfers and made the board shorter, um, we were going four times faster than we were going on a surfboard. <laughs> um, then we get the phone call from Mr. Jerry Lopez. And there was a really huge group over on Maui with highly successful windsurfers. Windsurfing was a big thing there because Hokokipa, and it was the Kings over there. And so Jerry calls us up one day and goes, you guys got to come over here. You got to come over here and take this wave out. The Atom Blaster. We're like, oh, really? Okay, shoot. We'll be over. So the next swell, we jump on an airplane. I think it was only 25 bucks one way. And we got over to Maui and Jerry picked us up and he took us up to his house and said, oh, we're going to need a big four by four to get out there, out where? So anyways, we went down to the cane fields and we went this and that way and that way and this way. We didn't even know where it was, but we could hear something. We could hear the out of blasting. After about an hour and a half, we ended up on the cliff and I'll never forget Laird and I ducked through the strawberry guava tree and came out to the cliff and looked down and it was top to bottom 25 30 feet identical to v-land and no one in the freaking ocean no one near the coast and we're just like oh my god welcome to the piahi um piahi means where everything is drawn to the venturi it wasn't until later that i called it jaws that everybody disrespects because of Jaws, because of Jaws. And um, we were on the moon for 15 years, Sean. And then social media came along and came Red Bull and came every, well, I'm gonna just put it this way, okay? We're eagles, Sean. We're born eagles in our blood. So we're already in an elite area and we're teaching a lot of people, okay? But there's a lot of chickens down there, you know, that have PFDs and buy guns and they've only been surfing three or four years or six years and they are big wave riders. Can you make a chicken into an eagle? No, but you can make a super chicken and that's where it's at right now. It's like, holy shit. Stand up, fall off. Stand up, fall off. Rescue by jet skis, PFDs. It's a complete shit show. And everyone in the world wants to be a big wave rider. Where back in my time, only the very elite eagles became big wave riders. So how... How does this make you feel as as a, uh, a a person who essentially invented it with with your team to where it is now and and how how do you reconcile that? Um, I'm I'm a when I'm not balanced and when I'm upset, I try not to be around it because it's very hard for me to see such a beautiful thing go backwards. But then ninety percent of the time, I smile because I was once there and I was once hungry for it and I still am, um, but I do trip. But I have to remember that we're the kings and there is a lot of respect towards 
me and my people. And I honor that. Um, as for the big days when I go down and do my thing and say hi to someone and they just walk by me, well, that's their loss and my gain. You know, um, I'm, I'm just blessed to have experienced and lived and created the gold years, golden years. And I'm okay with um, being stuck in traffic for two hours to get to Sunset Beach from Haleiwa. Um, I'm okay with these rich, rich, rich people buying all the homes on the beach and putting up keep out signs and things like that. I'm okay, I just smile because you can't stop progress. You can't stop Sean from not parking in your club parking lot. Even if there's no parking, you're gonna park in front of the stairs because that's what you pay for. But as for everyone else, there's no parking on the whole freaking island. And then if you think back when there was hardly anyone on the island. What, what do you say to those young big wave surfers today that are trying to, to prove themselves out there? What, what is um, a word of advice you have to them? Um, they don't ask me very much, but um, their parents ask me to talk with their kids and I share with them, but I make sure they're looking into my eyes and they ask, I ask them to make a question. Um, but as for um, um, other people um, out there, um, I kind of go, how long have you been surfing? Oh no, you don't belong out here. Um, who, who are you here with? Oh, that's your coach. What, are these six kids? six, seven kids, how old are you guys? 12 years old. What are you doing out here? What the fuck are you doing out here? Um, we have a Red Bull Magnitude. It's a wonderful concept. It's a virtual surf contest for women. It's a spectacular idea, Queen of the Bay. Um, there are some really good, good, good surfers. Momo Sakuma from Japan, probably the best surfer from uh, Japan ever that doesn't say anything. She's very humble. Um, you got Bianca that is surfs like a man. You've got some really good surfers, but then you've got some other surfers in that thing that um, should probably learn how to surf a little bit better and swim a lot better and not, you know, put their lives in a PFD and think they can get out of it. There needs to be more education. Um, and I just plant seeds to those who want education. And I'm willing to share that. I mean, I'm going to do a seed planting, a seed planting seminar with Brian Kealan and them at Bragg this year in Turtle Bay. It's, it's not all about taking the course and you beating me in the written test. It's about what you know in the water. You know, are you a super chicken or do you want to be an eagle? I want to come back to this this period because it's so uh, uh, important and inspiring. When that first session of Jaws happened, can, can you um, can you kind of uh, go th go through that a little bit? Yeah, that was very precious. It was me and Laird. We had what's called um, a Ford pickup with no trailer. We literally threw it in the back of the truck and then opened up, blew the back window out so we could tie it to the front of the truck. So it wouldn't slip. Um, we would go to a place called Maliko Gulch, which is, um, it's a, an area where the, the, the horse guys practice um, tricks for pineolos, for 
for the spoon and egg. It's just all horses and stuff. And we went down there and we asked him if it would be okay to use the boat ramp, which was a private boat ramp. I mean, nobody went there. It was a really bad boat ramp. And they said, no problem. Well, the next day we went down there, the day we went towing, we brought a case of beer, um, a, a sack of rice and some passion orange drink. And we left it next to the fence. You give, you receive. Um, we went out that morning. We threw the ski on the rocks, suited up. Um, Laird had a board in a bag and I had my Lopez my eight, six Lopez. And um, we put the ski in the water and I had coffee and donuts. And we went out Maliko Gulch um, side by side, one ski, the turtle. We went around the corner and started going up towards the lighthouse. And it's a good, it's a good three miles out. But when we got to the lighthouse, we stopped and we put a tea leaf in the water and said, whatever happens, let's stick together. Um, when you get to the lighthouse and turn around and start heading to Piahi, um, you see something that you've never experienced in your life before. And this is one of the things that happened to us. We saw the big giant cliff. We saw the trees. We knew where we were going. But what we didn't know was from being outside looking in, the spray from the wave was 100 feet high. Perfect peak going left and right and I'll never forget that feeling that visual like oh fuck this is the real deal the day that we got there was 25 30 feet 100 foot faces and um we sat over in the channel and it was like not very much words were being discussed um a lot of butterflies, but all of a sudden um, I go, you go. And he goes, now you go. Oh, no, you go. He goes, now you go. I was in the water. Um, I had no foot straps. I was on my 8-6 Madame Pelly Lopez. And there took me out and towed me on this three of the most remarkable ways that I ever had in my life. And the strap crew didn't even, they weren't even on the cliff yet. No one even knew how to get there yet. Um, after those three, I called it. And then Laird got on the rope and he pulled this little 610 Lopez out of the bag that he screwed foot straps in the night before. So that was when I saw me going fast, but he was going four times faster. Jumping, hopping, beeping, backing. Um, we went home that night. We said a big prayer and we knew that... Um, we were going to be on the move for the next 15 years. And so everything, our whole life just became centered around Piahi. Everything became Piahi. The world became Piahi. And we became the kings. And, and what year was that? 92. It's a turning point in my life. We did a lot of little stuff, you know, along the way, you know, we did, wake up call and all aboard the crazy train. And, you know, we just became a product of what happened to us now. You did James Bond at, at Jaws at Piahi. We did die another day at Piahi and it was a great experience. Um, if you really want to know more about it, if you were to go onto the website, die another day and go into the 
the beginning of it and go into um, the building of the movie and go into stunts and then go into um, our segment. It would show you the whole thing. Our wetsuits were too thick, how I cut holes in them, cut the, the bottoms off the boots. Um, our boards were, I had to make so many adjustments, but um, um, the producer said, no, 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 don't go shooting yet. We'll be there in a week, but we were ready to go. We had Don King, we had Sonny Miller, we had Homie, we had three to $5 million worth of unbelievable camera equipment. We had Don Shear, we had all the mounts ready to go. Southeasterly winds, it was 30, 40 feet. Hundreds of people were there and we showed up in the morning. And there were probably 50 skis in the lineup, maybe 2,000 people on the cliff, six or seven helicopters, all Brazilians and Venezuelans. Oh, just screaming and yelling, but they saw us coming. We got freaking our jet boat. We, they, the boys know. Anyways, that being said, we had a permit to shoot that day. We had a permit for five days. And so we started working and I was Pierce, Laird and Dave were together on one rope and I was Pierce on my own rope so I could do my own thing for an hour and they did their own thing for an hour. But we were having problems because guys were dropping in and guys were just screaming and yelling and we couldn't get the film and just too much people. Um, so there's a lifeguard here on the North Shore. I think his name is Bully. He's a big boy, really respectful guy. And I, I went over and asked him, okay, here's the deal, Bully. I go, you know, we have a permit for this place. Okay? So you guys aren't even supposed to be here, okay? So here's the deal. When you see the helicopter in the air, all you tell all your boys in the channel. When our helicopter leaves, it's all yours because our bird's going to be gone an hour and a half, reload, do that stuff. So um, that being said, um, we pulled about 20 skis together and he got everybody together. Oh, it's good. It's going to move. Bingo. No problem, Derek. Thank you very much. So it worked perfectly for three days. So they got theirs and we got ours. And it was just tremendous because they showed up a week later and we had all the footage and they're like, what? That was the last probably stunt I ever did in the movie industry. I got a lot of footage of that. You want to want to play with some? I, I uh, it's 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 my favorite Bond movie because of that intro. And when it happened, I was very proud to have already met you, and and uh, it, it was epic. And another movie that I'm a big fan of that you were in is Point Break. Um, you did the stunt at the end of of, of, um, of Point Break uh, when when Bodie, I believe, he's down in Bell's Beach and goes off for his last wave. Uh, you in reality. Uh, played Bodhi and you were at Waimea, as I understand. Um, could you could you give us a little knowledge on that experience? Well, Point Break was great. They had a screen um, testing here um, on, on Oahu and um, um, thousands of people showed up, but it was class. Hey, Mo. Um, I never went to it, a screening and uh, Mark Fu and everybody went to it. But anyways, I got a call about three or four days later from this agent and um, she goes oh mr daughter blah 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 you know, this is when we had landlines and i go yeah yeah this is derek she goes oh i don't want to patrick swayze wants you to die for him what goes, can we come and see you 
And I go, okay, well, I'm going to be at Chun's Reef. And I'm going to be in the water at 12 o'clock and have him paddle out by himself. And we'll discuss. So out comes Swayze paddling out. Couldn't paddle too good. And out he sits down next to me, could barely sit on his board. And he goes, hi, I'm Patrick Swayze. Are you Derek Dorner? And I go, yeah. He goes, I want you to die for me. And I go, I don't die for anybody, but. I'll die for you. What do I got to do? So that's when our discussion started. Um, a little advice to anybody that steps into the stunt world or now it's all AI, but um, get yourself a manager, especially a big time movie. Um, I wasn't represented. Um, I did 18 life and death stunts. Um, I probably could have made 50 to 100K per stunt. Um, I could have bought a house. I could have bought a lot of things if I would have been properly represented. Um, but I just being who I was, I just, I'm not a money guy. I'm money's, money's the root of all evil. Um, I'm kind of a free spirit. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the moment. Um, it was great. I probably would have gotten a lot of residuals like I do other stuff. But um, it, I got to hang with Swayze. He smoked a lot of Marlboros and smoked a lot of Pacololo. And um, I tried to hide him from all the women. And he was just had the most beautiful, beady blue eyes. And um, we had a lot of fun. Um, Matt Archibald was his stunt double for surfing. Matt is one of the best surfers around to this time. Um, cats, the whole thing, you know, a good friend of mine. But he did all that. But I just did the stunt stuff. And um, of course, there wasn't a storyboard. When there's a storyboard, they hand you a storyboard and it shows you what stunts they want you to look like. And they didn't have that. So um, after about 15 wipeouts, they just, just, we just couldn't pull it together. The crowds, the, the, the clouds kept coming in. They wanted it, the sun kept coming out. They wanted it to be cloudy. Um, so they went home and they revamped and then, um, and one night I'm sleeping and always keep a pencil and a piece of paper when you sleep because your mind flows freely. And I had this concept. Um, it was basically um, the swan dive. Super, just right off. And um, I told to him, they said, it's on, we're coming back. Let's know when the surf comes up and it's raining. So boom, it happened and I... I needed help. So I called up Laird and I said, Hey, Laird, I need a favor from you. I need you to come over and bounce for me tomorrow. Let them go. And then when I call the wave, you back them off. You got that? He goes, Shoot, let's do it. So along came the day, along came Laird. I let everybody um, catch their waves. But when my wave came, I just whistled. He backed everyone off and they stopped real quick because he was a big boy. And I did three takes um, the Iron Cross right off the front of my board. The first one hurt. Um, the second one was pretty good. And then the third one was the body surfing one where I got in the barrel and landed three times. By the way, that's Momo. She's really a big part. She's helped me a lot with the house. Awesome. And she's a great mom and a great surfer. Awesome. Uh, this concept of bouncing, uh, how, how, how does that go with the North Shore? You mean the Huntington hop? Tell us, tell me more. Like as far as uh, you called up Laird to help you out, and oh. I've heard, I've oh. heard you you do the same for other younger surfers who want to get experience at a big name spot like Pipeline. 
Yeah. Well, you know, if you go to Pipeline, there's a hundred people out. Hundred people. And um, like Tiger, he's got his spot a little bit outside of JOB and a little bit farther to the left than John John. JOB waits for his one wave, he gets it. John John waits for hours for that one wave, he gets it. T waits for his and gets it. Um, as for the other 95 people, oh God. Um for Laird, he was a big boy. And people were really jealous that I was being employed by um, a big movie. So they were jealous. And so guys like James Jones and Ricardo Pomar and them, they were, they were going to burn me bad. And so I had to struggle with that. But I know when my wave is coming because they go out and then I turn around and go in. And so I always get waves when I want it. But um, that particular day when we did the closing scene, it wasn't a big day, but it was really crowded. And thank God I had Laird because when we paddled out, I, you know, I explained to Laird what was going to happen and who the guys were going to be that are going to be taking off over and over and over. And definitely um, let James Jones know and Ricardo Pulmar know. Look, those are the two guys you're going to have to focus on. Well, he paddled right up to him and he just said what he was going to do. And they didn't smile too much. But when time came for me to talk to Laird or whistle to Laird and he let them know they backed off and it worked. We did three takes in and out wrap gone and they could have the rest of the day um bouncing for people as eddie Aikal said you know i only teach people who want to be taught i'll only help people that want to be helped but now there's so much in the lineup that even if i were to help you at waimea or sunset or pipe there's going to be 50 people trying to make a move on that one way. Um, it's kind of like my, my girlfriend Momo. When she goes out to Miami Bay, it takes her two hours to get into the sink. And no matter how many waves she gives away or you give away or I give away, the guys are going to paddle right by you from anywhere else in the world and they're going to go on the next set. They have no concept of sharing or caring or respect. It's just unbelievable. And then, of course, you have the super chickens that should be at Chan's Reef learning how to surf. You know, it's just uh, the world's changing. The world is changing. But thank God we have internet and Wi-Fi because now they can all go to Ma um, Nazare and Mavericks and desert point and all these other tremendous surf spots in the world and maybe that'll open up a little bit more room for um, for riding bigger waves but remember the window for riding bigger waves is you know you got a 20-year window and then you just move past it like i have i i, I won't even paddle out in 20-foot surf but i really want to tow now i want to get some i want to yank this winter and your son, Tiger, for, for those who don't know, is an incredible surfer today. And I, I had the privilege of meeting Tiger when he was three. And I, I would like for you to say a few words on parenting and fathering uh, young surfers and how to nurture um, a young surfer. Well, it's in the blood. Okay. Tiger was born 
with my blood. And um, he didn't want anything to do with my lifestyle at first. Same like Mason Ho and Coco Ho. They just, dad was just too big. No, I don't want to be like dad. Um, as time evolved, I went through the soccer. I went through the football. I went through the baseball. We never got a dictionary or an instruction manual to raise kids. We learned from your uncles, your parents, and your friends, and you knew when to take tools. And that being said, um, as time evolved for me and as time evolved for Michael Ho, um, the soccer went away, and then all of a sudden it became a boogie board, and then all of a sudden it became a surfboard, and then all of a sudden the rest was history because it's in the blood. I fortunately was on Piahi all the time, so I heard stories about my kid, but I never was there to see him. My advice is don't force your kid into anything. Let him follow what he wants to do. Um, don't poison him to be John John or the next bling bling there is with stickers and everything. Teach him respect the elders in the lineup. Wait your turn. Make sure that they're really grounded in swimming, such as you're doing now in the shore break. And you don't leave your kid at the beach alone or with friends until you know that you can go home and he's going to get a ride home with their friends because you know he's safe. So you have to really pay attention there. Um, family first, work second, third, Observer, don't get those mixed up. So, as much time as you can spend with your children now, do it because when they get, for instance, 15 years old, we're gone. The only thing they come home for is shower, eat, and sleep, and then they're in their own life. So, give them the tools they need, but respect and dignity is huge. And stay away from drugs because that is something that is just going to pour water on the fire. And some kids get influenced with other kids and other kids. And you'll see those kids come as my kid did. But one of the biggest influences I did was with my kid in my car. I go, you see those guys over there, Tiger? Goes, yeah. See those guys at 7-Eleven, Tiger? Yeah. Well, that's what you can become if you do that. And that's what they become. So just don't, if your kid comes home stoned, what did you do? If your kid comes home ripped on beer, what did you do? But try to find guidelines to go, just remember everything in moderation. Um, don't get hooked on anything and get through it. And I think those are good tools. Because I mean, Sean, what were we doing when we were that age? What were you doing when you were a teenager? Well, funny you say I I didn't discover beer as such until I was uh, twenty or uh, twenty years old at at UNCW. I was a, a straight edge hardcore guy in DC, uh, finding my love for the ocean. So I um, personally um, didn't enjoy that, but I did enjoy it in my in my twenties, and um, that's kind of was my personal hi history. Uh, yeah. 
Same here. I didn't drink beer or anything, no alcohol through high school. I never drank it here when I was a young lifeguard. Um, when I got hurt for nine months, um, there was beer in my refrigerator and I started drinking beer and I, I, I liked it. It made me relax. Um, and then I've had times where it's just too much. And then, you know, and then it overtakes you, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that you do for um, pleasure. You know, um, it's not something you do to run away and hide from. Um, and, you know, I can say that we all go through trials and tribulations in, in life. Um, and um, I've had one um, happen to me last year, which, you know, I wasn't really going to speak about, but I, I got the word that I had cancer. And um, you know, that's the C word is a stunning thing. And not me, you know, not double D. And um, I, when I first found out it was okay, but when things started really um, coming into play, I, I, I escaped. And not only did I escape, I started drinking beer, drinking too much for the escape, which everybody does. I'm honest to say this to you, to, to whoever. And um, it affected my friendships to a lot of people. It affected my friendship to my son, to my girlfriend. I withdrew and it, it um, finally got a control of it. I stepped out of the force and looked back in and went, hey, it's not them, it's me. Um, so I've turned it around. I'm dealing with it like a man. Um, I'm in the white water before I get to the blue water. And if there's anybody out there that can relate to this, I'm sure you can relate. It's definitely a dead end road. So pick it up and, and keep it going, baby. Well, Derek, thousands of people are are praying for you. And I, right now you are looking amazing. And I, I'm sure that you're going to come at this with, with, same power that you brought to to your life uh thus far so i mean we're bubbles up bubbles up it's like jimmy you know he was a good friend of mine we surfed a lot um he had such a compassion heart that he had he had cancer he had skin cancer he had a really different type of skin cancer but he had a schedule to fulfill he had people that he needed to um, play music to you know Salty hair, sandy feet, bubbles up, baby. He played his last two gigs. And then maybe if he hadn't have played his last two gigs, but no, it was too far gone already. But he just went out there, man. And my advice is to um, keep surfing. Keep surfing saves lives. And um, I last year, I didn't even give a crap. It was pumping. And I just didn't feel it. Um, I've surfed a couple times this this summer, but the surf had been so small here this summer. And now we're in autumn, which is fall. It's completely flat. And um, I can't wait to just go out and surf with my friends. Crowded or not crowded, one wave or five waves or 30 waves. I'm surfing. And I'm going to surf till the day I die. And I'm going to get through this. But my advice for us guys older than 50 or hardhead surfers, Follow through with your doctor. Get a blood sample. Catch it while it's young. Because it ain't no joke. The C word will kill you. Amazing advice for us all. Uh, Derek, this uh, this power that you find that that all, all surfers, people who enjoy the ocean find, what what is it from your perspective when you go out there in the ocean and and how do you see uh, the the beauty, and how does it bring it bring in 
you to another level when you return to land. Uh, what, what, what is it about it? God, the ocean is just such a, a tremendous force of love. Um, and yet um, she's a very jealous bitch too. Um, most of the rewards are so soothing and so personal. And it's like you're being able to be as one with yourself. And it seems that the moment the moment you get into the water, everything goes away. And imagine you, you kind of back out in the water and you sit down on your board and you're thinking about, oh, I got to pay that bill or I got to pay this or I got to be home in 30 minutes to pick up my kid or, you know, everything comes back in your mind. But the moment you catch a wave, everything goes away till you kick out. And that is what draws us to, you know, that's what draws me to surfing is that void in the mind where you just put everything aside. And I love the taste. I love the smell. And I just love the serenity about it. And it's just something that's going to be in my life for a long, long time, I hope. Like I told Tiger, it's like, hey, Tiger, when, when I do go to the Rainbow Bridge, find the, the flattest, cleanest, clearest water in the world and throw me in the ocean there. Derek, is that the water that you love the most? The flattest, the cleanest is when you picture a perfect ocean. Is is that without a breath on it? Is that God, the aesthetic? You know, when I go to town, you're talking full on locals, full on beach boys, hot parking lot, girls everywhere, guys everywhere, pakalolo smell everywhere. Surfers, catamarans, tourists, but when you get in the water at Kaiser Bowls and paddle around the jetty and stop, it is absolutely turquoise. You can see all the fish, all the reef, all the sea urchins. It's 75, 80 degrees. That's what I'm talking about. It is so clean and so pure. And being part of that <clears throat> will be part of your life forever into the next world that just Derek I, I I really can't thank you enough for spending this amount of time uh with with me and with the audience whoever listens to this in the future and it, it's um it's one of those things that will be like on a cave wall and I I, I I'm I'm honored I want to I want to kind of end with one large question. Um, if you had to give advice uh, as to what the meaning of life is to a, a really young person, um, what what would you tell them? And I would like to understand this. That's real simple. Um, respect your elders and treat others the way that you want to be treated. Simple, simple keynotes. Go to school, graduate the 12th grade, get your diploma, and enjoy life from there on out. You'll find out who your friends are on one hand. And that's the advice that I could give. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and I have just one final question on top of that. Uh, what about people who aren't at the beach and want to enjoy a beach lifestyle? Uh, what is your advice to them? Learn how to swim. 
because you can't go to the beach and enjoy the ocean if you don't know how to swim. Ask the lifeguards, ask Sean, ask the local people where the rips are, where the rips aren't. Pick up trash when you leave the beach um, and enjoy it because you only have it once and it only gets better from here on out. Derek, I'm forever grateful for your friendship over these years and it, it's uh, an incredible um, time we just had. Thank you very much. You have a good evening and we'll be in touch. Um, we'll talk a little bit more in regards to um, what we talked about. Six hours ahead. Bubbles up, my friend. Love you so much, Derek. Hello. Hello. Have a great afternoon. Let me see if I can do this. Beep. Beep. Okay, brother. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. Stay healthy. Okay.